Robert Frost went walking in the woods. And even if we can't remember the precise words that he wrote, we all know that something magical happened that has survived and will survive for as long as humans are interested in in having our predicament summarised in poetry. I'm back in the wood, Moonbon Wood, walking with Rebecca Solnit in my left hand, a history of walking wanderlust, with Louis in front of me, marking the trail. And I've got as far as chapter three, and I'm torn in two different direct, torn like which uh, which way the path less trodden or the path well trodden shall I go? Because I keep having impulses that oh look, this book is so long; it's going to take me too long reading it. I will have to jump into the middle or jump to the end to carry on and the other is I must walk with this book slowly reading slowly this is not a case not a time for speed reading in my kitchen where I open the book and I read rapidly without any words of my own no We've now reached the chapter that's headed rising and falling. The theorist of bipedalism. Bipedalism, not a word I've heard before. The theorists of two feet-ism. I guess two feet-ism is, well, of course it is, rising and falling. So here we are. It was a place as as blank as a sheet of paper. There are people in front pushing a pushchair. We'll go the way they're not going. Okay, Louis, you stay by me. The dog has paused, walking by my side, looking carefully ahead. I see one pushchair. I see a woman pushing it. I see a woman chatting beside her. I see one, two, three, four... Children ranging from about 10, 11. One of them has a hurley and a ball. Looks like a tennis ball. Tapping it on. And I come to the fork. This is not a place as blank as a sheet of paper. Come on, Louis, we go this way. We'll keep away from them. Okay, let me get back here. Because I want the solitude (coughs) on the trail. And I want the company of trees. It was a place as blank as a sheet of paper. It was the place I had always been looking for. Our train and car windows in my imagination. And on my walk, through more complicated terrain flat expanses would call to me promising walking as I could walk promising walking as I imagined it and now I had arrived at the pure plain of a dry lake bed where I could walk uninterrupted and utterly free there are more people here Louis, we go this way The desert holds many of these dry lake beds or playas washed long ago or annually to a surface as flat and inviting as a dance floor when dry. These are the places where the desert is most itself stark, open, free, 
an invitation to wonder, a laboratory of perception, scale, light, a place where loneliness has a luxurious flavour. A place where loneliness has a luxurious flavour, like in the blues. This reminds me of a day when I reached from a bed very early morning and picked up a volume of selected poems by Walt Whitman. And in the introduction I came across a phrase I've never forgotten and which may be the most memorable phrase I've ever read. The wilderness of unopened life. And for some reason I think that that phrase was written by D.H. Lawrence but it may not have been writing about Walt Whitman. Anyway, the wilderness of unopened life, where loneliness has a luxurious flavour. This one, near Joshua Tree National Park in southeastern California's Mojave Desert, was occasionally a lake bed, but mostly a pure plain of cracked dust in which nothing grew. To me, these big spaces mean freedom, freedom for the unconscious activity of the body and the conscious activity of the mind. Places where walking hits a steady beat that seems to be the pulse of time itself. Pat, my companion on this walk across the lake bed, prefers rock climbing, in which every move is an isolated act that absorbs the whole of his attention and seldom rises to a rhythm. It's a difference of style that cuts deep in our lives. He is something of a Buddhist and conceives of spirituality as being conscious in the moment while I am a sucker for symbolisms, interpretations, histories and a Western kind of spirituality that is located less in the here than in the there. Wow. But both of us share... The same notion of being out in the land as an ideal way to exist. Walking, I realised long ago in another desert, is how the body measures itself against the earth. On this lake bed, each step brought us minutely closer to one of the ranges of mountains, blue in the lake afternoon light that circled our horizon like the bleachers rising above a field. Picture the lake bed as a pure geometric plane that our steps measured like the legs of a protractor swinging back and forth. The measurements recorded that the earth was large and we were not. The same good and terrifying news most walks in the desert provide. On this afternoon... Even the cracks in the ground cast long, sharp shadows, and a shadow like a skyscraper stretched from Pat's van. Our shadows moved alongside us on our right, growing longer and longer, longer than I had ever seen them. I asked him how long he thought they were, and he told me to stand still and he'd pace it off. I faced east in my shadow, towards the closest mountains that all the shadows stretched towards and he began to walk. I stood alone, my shadow like a long road Pat travelled. He seemed in that pellucid air. I don't know that word, pellucid. He seemed in that pellucid air not to grow distant but only to grow smaller. When I could frame him between my thumb and forefinger held close together and his shadow stretched almost to the mountains, he had reached the shadow of my head. But as he arrived, the sun suddenly slipped below the horizon. With that, the world changed. The plain lost its gilding. The mountains became a deeper blue and our sharp shadows grew blurry. I called for him to stop in the now vague shadow of my head and when I had myself covered the distance between us he told me he'd gone a hundred paces 250 or 300 feet 
but what constituted my shadow had become harder and harder to distinguish as he went. We walked back to the van as night approached. The experiment concluded. But where did it begin? So, a particular detailed experience gives rise slowly and surely and predictably I think by now in the book predictably to the question but where did it begin okay back to Rebecca Rousseau again Rousseau thought that humanity's true nature could be found in its origins and that to understand those origins was to understand who we were and who we should be the subject of human origins has itself evolved immensely since he cobbled together a few sketchy descriptions of non-European customs with some groundless speculation on the noble savage. Noble savage is what a term that Rousseau is best known for. I say this for anyone who listens to this who might be wondering where the term noble savage came from. But the argument that who we were originally, whether originally means 1940 or 3 million years ago, turning the page in the middle of purple and yellow, weeds, flowers in an unexpected place, my mother used to call them. Who we are, or ought to be, has only become stronger with time. Popular books and scientific articles debate again and again whether we are a bloodthirsty, violent species or a communitarian one, and what kind of differences between the genders are encoded in our genes. Both are often just so stories about who we are, could be, or should be, told by everyone, from conservatives arguing the adequacy of tradition to health seekers arguing that we ought to eat some just-discovered primordial diet. God, she doesn't half cover a landscape of intellectual disputation. This, of course, makes who we were an intensely political subject. The scientists researching human origins have been contentious about these questions of human nature, and in recent years, walking has become a central part of their conversation. Aha! I didn't know this. While philosophers have had little to say about what walking means, scientists have, of late, had a great deal to say. Paleontologists, anthropologists and anatomists have launched a passionate and often partisan argument over when and why the ancestral ape got up on its hind legs and walked so long that its body became our upright, two-legged, striding body. They were the philosophers of walking I had been looking for, speculating endlessly about what each, each bodily shape says about function and about how those forms and functions eventually added up to our humanity, though what that humanity consists of is equally debatable. The only given is that upright walking is the first hallmark of what became humanity. Upright walking is the first hallmark of what became humanity. That's an interesting alternative viewpoint to one that I would have uh, been more familiar with or familiar with which is that the use of symbols was what 
began to indicate humanity. What an interesting point of view. The only given is that upright walking is the first hallmark of what became humanity. Whatever its causes, it caused much more. It opened up vast new horizons of possibility, and among other things, it created the spare part, no, the spare pair of limbs dangling from the upright body, seeking something to hold or make or destroy. The arms freed to evolve into ever more sophisticated manipulators of the material world. Some scholars see two-legged walking as the mechanism that set our brains expanding. Others as the structure that enabled our sexuality. So, although the debate about the origins of bipedalism is full of detailed descriptions of hip joints and foot bones and geological geologic dating methods. It is ultimately about sex, landscape, and thinking. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God. There is stunning humor for me in this book. It's so iconoclastic in the best meaning of that word. Usually the uniqueness of human beings is portrayed as a matter of consciousness. Yet the human body is also unlike anything else on earth, and in some ways has shaped that consciousness. The animal kingdom has nothing else like this column of flesh and bone always in danger of toppling, this proud, unsteady tower. The few other truly two-legged species... Birds, kangaroos, have tails and other features for balance, and most of the bipeds hop rather than walk. Never thought about this myself. The alternating long stride that propels us is unique. Perhaps that that it is such a precarious arrangement. Four-legged animals are as stable as a table. (laughs) Perhaps that's a first line of a limerick in some ways when all four feet are on the ground but humans are already precariously balanced on two before they begin to move even standing still is a feat of balance as anyone who has watched or been a drunk knows and I tell you something for me standing on one foot is a feat, upright, is a feat beyond my ability now. I wonder if, I wonder how many people I know would be able to stand upright on one foot for as long as three or four minutes. I would be lucky to do it for 45 seconds. I must try it again. Perhaps I'll try it here. Still upright, I am. Calmness, 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 calmness. Breathe easy, Paul. Breathe easy. Have I reached a minute yet? Oh, no, it's just... I, I mean, I could have carried on a little bit longer, but it was getting unpleasant. And scientific experimentation. Well, it's no good me saying should be pleasant. But, never mind. I felt like a doctor in the, I don't know, 18th century, maybe even 19th century, who was giving medicine to himself or herself in order to see what response it might get from other patients. Carrying on. Oh yes, stable as a table. There once 
there once was a beggar. No. There once was a a husband. There once was a wife called Mabel whose legs were steady as a table. Yeah, I could I could develop that, I'm sure. Let's carry on Rebecca's sonnet. Reading the accounts of human walking, it is easy to begin to think of the fall, capital F, to think of the fall in terms of the falls, the innumerable spills, possibly for a suddenly upright creature that must balance all its shifting weight on a single foot as it moves. John Napier, in an essay on the ancient origins of walking, wrote... Human walking is a unique activity during which the body, step by step, teeters on the edge of catastrophe. Man's bipedal mode of walking seems potentially catastrophic because only the rhythmic forward movement of one leg and then the other keeps him from falling flat on his face. Thank you, John. This is easiest to see in small children for whom the many aspects that will later unite seamlessly into walking are still distinct and awkward. They learn to walk by flirting with falling. They lean forward with their body and then rush to keep their legs under that body. Their plump, bowed legs often seem to be lagging behind or catching up and they often tumble into frustration before they master the art. Children begin to walk, to chase desires no one will fulfill for them. The desire for that which is out of reach. For freedom, for independence from the secure confines of the maternal Eden. And so walking begins as delayed falling. And the fall meets with the fall. Genesis may seem out of place in a discussion of science but it is often the scientists who have dragged it in with them, unwittingly or otherwise. The scientific stories are as much an attempt to account for who we are as any creation myth, and some of them seem to hark back to the central creation myth of Western culture, that business of Adam and Eve in the garden. Many of the hypotheses have been wildly speculative, seemingly based less on the evidence than on modern desires or old mores, particularly as they relate to the roles of the sexes. During the 60s, the man, the hunter story was widely accepted and made popular by such books as Robert Audrey's African Genesis with its famous opening line, Not in innocence and not in Asia was man born. It suggested that violence and aggression are eradicable parts of human disposition, but redeemed them by proposing that they were the means by which we evolved, or males evolved. Most of the mainstream theories have tended to leave female females doing little, but passing along the genes of their evolving mates. Early challengers of the man, the hunter scenario, writes the feminist anthropologist Adrian Zielman, points out parallels between the interpretation of hunting as propelling humanity, humankind into humanity, on the one hand, and the biblical myth of expulsion from Eden after Eve's eating the tree of knowledge on the other. The authors argue that both fates, those of hunting and of the expulsion, were precipitated by an act of eating, meat in the first instance and forbidden fruit in the other. Solnit says, and they argue that the division of labour, men as hunters, women as gatherers, 
reflects the distinct division of roles given Adam and Eve in Genesis. Similarly, during the 1960s and 1970s, the theory went that human walking evolved during a time of radical climate change when the species was transformed from an arboreal forest dweller to a creature of the savannah, another expulsion from Eden. Nowadays, both the dominance of hunting and the residence on the savannah have fallen from favour as evolutionary explanations, but the language remains. Scientists now pursuing human origins, not in fossils but in genes, describe our hypothetical common ancestor as African Eve, our mitochondrial Eve. These scientists have sometimes looked for what they wanted to find or found what they were looking for. The Piltdown Man hoax was believed from 1908 to its denouement in 1950 because British scientists were eager to believe the evidence of a large-brained creature with an animal jaw. The bones suggested the evidence of a No, the bones suggested that our intelligence was of great age and gratified them by showing up in England. Much was made of clever Pilton man as an Englishman. Until new technologies proved him a liar cobbled together from a modern ape's jaw and a human skull. When Raymond Dart found a child's skull in South Africa in 1924 that, unlike Piltdown Man, turned out to be genuine, it was widely discredited as a human ancestor by the British masters so pleased by Piltdown. It was discredited because the scientists of the era preferred not to come from Africa and because the skull of the toying child, as it was called, had a small cranium, but evidently walked upright, suggesting that our intelligence had come late rather than early in our evolution. At the base of the skull is an opening called the foromen magnum, through which the spinal cord connects to the brain. The foromen magnum of the tog, tog, T-A-U-N-G child was in the centre of the skull as it is in us rather than in the back as it is in apes and so it was evident that the, that the that this creature had walked upright its head poised atop the spine rather than hanging down from it like most of the skulls of the Australopithecine hominids who would evolve into humans, this one looks to the modern eye like a house with odd proportions. The porch of the brow, jutting jaw, is enormous. The attic where the modern brain rises is non-existent. Most modern evolutionists propose that our human characteristics, walking, thinking, making, originated together. Perhaps because they found it hard or unpleasant to imagine a creature who shared only a part of our humanity. Dart's counter-hypothesis was advanced by Louis and Mary Leakey's spectacular Kenyan finds in the 1950s, 60s and 70s, and all but confirmed by Donald Johansson's celebrated discovery of the Lucy skeleton and related fossils in Ethiopia in the 1970s. Walking came first. Okay, I got to pause. My left hand is fatigued from, tired really, from holding the book. And the book is no light matter to hold while I walk along in between thumb and forefinger, supported by the elbow. This wood is deciduous on one side of the trail with what looks like hazel tree on the right but it isn't hazel 
I forget the name of it. I will remember in a minute. It's also used to make hedges on the left hand side are pines and I know not the name of any of the pines with confidence. Spruce must be somewhere. There's a ah yeah, a bit of gorse. The coloured flowers that were there about six weeks ago, certainly two months ago, gone now. There are logs cut, ready to be taken away for commercial use. There is a, what's it called, humus under the trees. Loads of it made from falling leaves and worked on by by earthworms. Nowadays, walking upright is considered to be the Rubicon, the evolving species crossed to become hominid, distinct from all other primates and are ancestral to human beings. Now, I didn't know that. Considered by whom? How many of my friends would say that the first characteristic of being human was walking? I must try this out and see. If I was given a list of them, which included, you know, consciousness, language, and walking, I certainly wouldn't have picked walking. The list of what we eventually got from bipedalism is long and alluring, full of all the gothic arches and elongations of the body. Start with the straight row of toes and high arch of the foot. Go up the long, straight walker's legs to the buttocks. Round and protuberant, thanks to the massively developed legs, massively developed glutinous maximus of walkers, a minor muscle in apes, but the largest muscle in the human body. Then go to the flat stomach, the flexible waist, the straight spine, the low shoulders, the erect head set atop a long neck, the upright bodies, various sections are balanced on top of each other like the sections of a pillar, while the weight of quadrupeds, heads and torsos hang from their spines like the roadway from a suspension bridge, with a pair of pier-like legs towards either end. The great apes are knuckle-walkers, creatures adapted to life towards either end. adapted to life in tropical forests, who for the most part move only short distances on the ground between trees. On long forelimbs that give them a kind of diagonal posture. Apes have, when compared to humans, arched backs, no waists, short necks, chests shaped like inverted funnels, protuberant abdomens, scrawny hips and bottoms, handy, no bandy legs and flat feet with opposable big toes. <laughs> wow. When I think about this evolutionary history of walking, I see a small figure like my companion on the lake bed. Only this time it is drawn and the figure is moving towards me. An indecipherable dot in the distance that seems somehow unfamiliar as it becomes distinguishable as an upright figure. And finally, when it draws close, is just another walker. The next time I see a walker coming towards me on a trail, I will see that walker with different eyes. I will look at her or his hips, thighs, head, hands, arms, I will look differently at humans on the trail. But what was that K2 
casting a long shadow in the middle distance. Lucy, as they named the small 3.2 million year old Australopithecus afarensis skeleton found in Ethiopia in 1974, presuming from various details that it was female, was ape-like in many respects. She had little in the way of a waist or neck, short legs, longish arms and the funnel-like ribcage of an ape. Her pelvis, however, was wide and shallow, and so she had a stable gait. G-A-I-T. With hip joints far apart, tapering to close-together knees, like humans and unlike chimps, whose narrow hips and far-apart knees make them lurch from side to side when they walk upright. Some say she would have been a terrible runner and not much of a walker, but she walked, this much is certain, and then comes the arguments. Dozens of scientists have interpreted her bones, reconstructed her flesh, her gait, her sex life, in dozens of different ways and argued over whether she walked well or poorly. Discovery conveys a certain privilege of interpretation And so Johansson, who worked in the Cleveland Museum, took the bones he found in Hadar, Ethiopia, to his friend Owen Lovejoy, anatomist at Cleveland State University and an expert on human locomotion. Lovejoy issued the orthodox verdict. In his book, Johansson reports that Lovejoy said of the afarensis knee joint he brought in the year before, This is like a modern knee joint. The little midget was fully bipedal. But could he walk upright, I persisted. My friend, he could could walk upright. Explain to him what a hamburger was and he'd beat you to the nearest McDonald's nine times out of ten. (laughs) Johansson's knee joint came along as the first material support for Lovejoy's bold theory that bipedalism had begun and been perfected far earlier than anyone else had assumed. The following year, the Lucy skeleton, or the 40% of it that was recovered, further confirmed his hypothesis about the antiquity of human walking, as did the 3.7 million-year-old footprints of a pair of walkers Mary Leakey's team found in Leitoli, Tanzania, in 1977. But why had these creatures become bipedal? By 1981, Lovejoy had evolved a complicated explanation for why we got up and walked. In his 1981 science article, Science is a Journal, the origin of man has become the focal point for his arguments in the field about the reasons why walking appeared four million or more years ago. Lovejoy evolved an elaborate thesis that decreasing the time between births would increase the survival rate of the species. In most primal species, he wrote, male fitness is largely determined by consort success of one sort or another. (laughs) That is in the ability or opportunity to mate and therefore pass along their genes. He proposed that in the Miocene era, five million or more years ago, the human ancestor changed its, or rather his, behaviour. Males, he proposed, began to bring back provisions for the females. The females thus provided for were able to bear more children as the challenge of feeding themselves and their young was lessened, and the male-headed nuclear family was born. When was this? In, the 19, in 1981. And the male-headed nuclear family was born. In other words, the male fitness had expanded to include provisioning, 
which would allow them to pass along those genes more frequently, and certainly bipedalism, he wrote. In a 1988 summary, figured in this new reproductive scheme, because by freeing the hands it made it possible for the male to carry food gathered far from his mate. But he added such daily separation of the sexes would only genetically favour males if they could come home and propagate their own genes and no one else's. Thus the behaviour must have, have, have selected for, mo, mo, for monogamous females as well as responsible males. All right, the behaviour must have selected for, not, for monogamous females as well as responsible males. Well, another argument for monogamy. Lovejoy explained, quote, the highly unusual sexually, sexual behaviour of man must now be brought into focus. Human females are continually sexually receptive and male approach may be considered equally continually sexually. And male, sorry, human females are continually sexually receptive and male approach may be considered equally stable. End quote. Since unlike the females of most species, this one no longer signaled her fertile times, they had sex a lot to procreate and to bond. If we regard it as a creation myth, it is one in which the two-parent family is far older than the human species. Hominid males are mobile and responsible partners, and parents and females are needy, faithful, stay-at-home mates who are not the instruments of bipedal evolution. Okay, guys, we're the ones who determine the course of history. We're the ones who... who evolved. I wonder how women actually got to be able to walk. The 1960s myth of man the hunter had been succeeded by two theories in the 1970s. One dubbed women the gatherer proposed that the primordial diet was probably mostly vegetarian and was mostly collected then as in hunter-gatherer societies today by females. The other emphasised food sharing as instrumental in ensuring survival and generating a home base in which food was brought and shared, resulting in more complex social consciousness. In this theory, a communitarian first supper takes the place of Ardley's blood sports as the event that propelled us into humanity. Lovejoy combined aspects of both these new theories to create his man, the gatherer, who brought food home and shared it, though only with his mate and offspring. His theory suggested not only that walking had been a male business and that the males in question had been full of family virtues, but that the virtues in question had made us walkers. In fact, he said Lucy and her ilk could walk better than we do and further the species had lost its ability to climb I used to climb as a kid admittedly not up very high we had trees in our garden and my youth one of the things would be remembered was hanging upside down with my feet over a branch as if I was a swing I was staying with Pat in his shack just outside Joshua Tree National Park while I wrote this chapter. Ah, so she rose outdoors. Preoccupied and trying to sort out the sea of material before me, I kept recounting theories to him about why we became bipedal, about details of anatomy and function, and he laughed incredulously at the more outlandish one. Quote, people get grants and tenure for that, he'd say. His favourite was R.D. Guthrie's 1974 proposal that when hominids began by, became bipedal, the males used their now exposed penises as a threat 
display organ to intimidate opponents and we speculated on the origins of human laughter. The following day after he came home from gilding clients up and down rock faces all day and was lounging with a drink, I read him anthropologist's Dean Falk's attack on Lovejoy. Lovejoy's term, copulatory vigilance, caught his attention and we laughed more at the strange stuff I was immersed in. Not that his world was exactly a bastion of seriousness. While he was climbing for pleasure the day before, I had lain in the shade, idly flipping through his guidebook and been entertained by some of the names of the climbing routes up and down the park's myriad giant boulders. Presbyterian dental floss was right next to Episcopalian toothpick, while boogers on a lampshade mocked the climb, genteely called figures in a landscape, and innumerable poodle political and anatomical jokes described other vertical routes up the rocks. That evening, as I read bipedal theory to him, and the quail bobbed about the backyard and the setting sun pushed the shadows of the hills further and further across the valley. He swore he would get his friends, who founded and named many of the park's climbing routes, to name the next one Copulatory Vigilance, an obscure monument to a theory that we had lost our ability to climb, and to his opinion of the more far-flung theories of human origins. Lovejoy's theory has become famous, if only because no one can resist attacking it. A pause. A rest for a minute. An opportunity to hang my left arm down by my side and connect with its swing. And do something which is not to be publicized as I put my book down and walk behind a tree as many hominids must have done a natural function The dog joins me, but the dog is marking, and I am relieving. Come, Louis. Let us walk back whence we came. There are other things to be done in life than walking around a wood. Among the earlier critics were the anatomists Jack Stern and Randall Sussman at the State University of New York at Stony Brook, who I visited. Well, that should be whom I visited. Let me put the book down again and tie my shoelace. <clears throat> Stopping to tie a shoelace. Something you don't have to do if you walk in bare feet. Reminds me of summers as a child where I didn't wear shoes for what I remember as about three months. So where was I? Two unathletic men with identical chipped grey moustaches. They looked something like the men with identical with, no, they looked something like the walrus and the carpenter, with Stern as the compact carpenter and Sussman the expansive walrus. They talked to me for hours in an office full of bones and books and periodically one or the other 
would grab a chimp pelvis or a cast of a fossil femur to illustrate a point. Obviously enthusiastic about their work, they often went off on conventional tangents with each other that left me far behind, and they delighted too in dishing their colleagues in this contentious field. They sound a little, some of their behaviour sounds a little like me, especially when it is. They often went off in conversational tangents with each other. They had argued that Johnson's Lucy era Australopithecans afarensis fossils were those of apprentice walkers who, based on the evidence, big arms and smallish legs, curved fingers and toes, continued climbing trees well and frequently for a long time afterwards. Another feature of the afarensis fossils they took up was gender size. If the large and small skeletons Johansson and company had found in Ethiopia were the same species, with Richard Leakey and others contest, then the sizes must represent small females and large males, which made it unlikely they practiced Lovejoy's monogamous arrangement. Living primate species, those without size differentials, such as given gibbons, are monogamous. So their version of Lucy was that she was a lousy walker with big floppy feet, a pretty good climber with long strong arms and probably part of a polygamous group in which small females spent more time in the trees than large males. Sussman said, back when we started this work and I don't think it's in humble to say this the majority of the people that's lovely I don't think it's in humble (laughs) double negative I do think it's humble wow I must remember that I don't think it's in humble the majority of the people in the field would say we evolved in the savannah in the open country of the veldts of South Africa or the savannah of East Africa I think that's a load of crap I think that what happened was that Afarensis was living in forest and open country mosaics like you see today in places like the French Congo or along rivers where there's a lot of trees. I mean that probably went on for a million years when you had an animal that was climbing in an apprentice biped. He added that in the old pictures creating this phase of evolution... The creatures were strolling across the grassland. Newer ones showed them in touch with more mixed, in much more mixed habitat. And the more recent National Geographic articles had paintings that placed these creatures in forests, with some of them in trees. That the creatures were forest dwellers and tree climbers had become, Stern said, so obvious that no one bothered to credit Stern and Sussman for pushing the idea early on. The argument before had been circular, that hominids had learned to walk in order to venture into the savannah, and that if they survived on the savannah, they must have been competent walkers. And the savannah seemed to be an image of freedom, of unlimited space, in which the possibilities were likewise unlimited, a nobler space than the primeval forest that was less like the open forest of Rousseau's solitary wanderers and more like the jungles from which Jane Goodall and Dean Fossey sent back their primal reports. I think of the forest. I think of the forest as the unconscious, a place representing the conscious, the unconscious, that dark place that underpinning place on which everything is founded, on which every element of consciousness is founded, as against the savannah which is above the unconscious, which is clean and rational and more like logic than emotions.
Stern said a little later on, I worry most about the manner of their bipedal walking. I wrote a paper saying... They could not have walked as we do. It's not fast. He's not energetically efficient. Are we wrong? Was their method of bipedalism actually pretty good? Sussman cut in. Or did they combine very good tree climbing with shitty bipedalism? And gradually the proportions reversed. Stern continued. The argument that I sometimes soothe myself with is that chimpanzees are really pretty crappy quadrupods themselves as four-footed animals go. So if they can be pretty crappy quadrupeds for seven million years, then we could have been pretty crappy bipeds for a couple of million years. At the 1991 Conference on the Origins of Bipedalism in Paris, Three anthropologists had reviewed all the current theories on walking as a kind of academic stand-up comedy routine. <laughs> I'd love to have been there. They described the Schlepp hypothesis, which explained walking as an adaptation for carrying food, babies and various other things. The peekaboo hypothesis, which involves standing up to sea over the grass of the savannah. The trench coat hypothesis, which, like Guthrie's theory that so amused Pat, connected bipedalism to penal display. Only this time to impress females rather than intimidate other males. The all-wet hypothesis, which press females rather than intimidate, which impress females rather than intimidate other males. The all-wet hypothesis, which involved wading and swimming along a proposed aquatic phase of evolution. The tag-along hypothesis, which involved walking migratory herds across that ever-popular savanna. The hot-to-trot hypothesis, which was one of the more seriously recent theories claiming that bipedalism limited solar exposure in the tropical midday sun and thus freed the species up to move into hot, open habitat. And the two feet are better than four hypothesis, which proposes that bipedalism was more energy efficient than quadrupedalism, at least for the primates who would become humans. My goodness... What did George Orwell anticipate? Did George Orwell, in some unconscious way, anticipate the theory of evolution from four feet to two feet? And did he, thereby, by painting the picture, did he paint the first bipedalist as guilty of the original sin. Hmm. Hmm. It was quite a collection of theories, though since talking to Stern and Sussman I had grown accustomed to the fluctuating interpretations of what to a layperson exposed not only one source, not only exposed to only one source, sounds like established fact. I had grown accustomed to the fluctuating interpretations of what to a lay person exposed to only one source sounds like established facts. The bones unearthed in Africa in ever greater quantity remain enigmatic in crucial ways and the business of their interpretation recalls the ancient Greeks reading the entrails of animals to divine the future or the Chinese throwing I Ching sticks to understand the world. They are constantly being rearranged to correspond. They're constantly arranged to correspond to a new evolutionary family tree.
a new set of measurements. Two Zurich anthropologists, for example, recently declared that the famous Lucy skeleton is actually that of a male, while Falk argues that she is not a human ancestor. Paleontology sometimes seems like a courtroom full of lawyers, each waving around evidence that confirms their hypotheses and ignoring the evidence that contradicts it. Though Stern and Sussman impressed me as being exceptionally committed to evidence rather than ideology. What I find fantastic and delightful is the way in which two scientists, these two guys, for example, can summarise what must be an immensely complicated scientific investigation into very attractive phrases, each of which are doors to the to further imaginings. Only one thing seemed agreed upon in all these competing theories, stories of the bones, the thing that Mary Leakey had said when she wrote about the footprints her team had found in Leitoli. One cannot overemphasize the role of bipedalism in hominid development. It stands as perhaps the salient point that differentiates the forebears of man from other primates. This unique ability freed the hands from myriad possibilities, carrying, tool, making, intricate manipulation. I wonder why she said fighting. For this single development, in fact, stems all modern technology. However unsimplified the formula holds, that this new freedom of forelimbs posed a challenge. The brain expanded to meet it, and mankind was formed. Wow. Well, that's a reasonably good... That's a good summary of what I've been reading within all the theories. But anyway, I wonder if they all really do agree with that. Falk wrote the most devastating reply to Lovejoy's hypothesis in a 1997 essay titled Brain Evolution in Human Females, an answer to Mr. Lovejoy. She declared, According to this view, early hominid females were left not only four-footed, pregnant, hungry, and in fear of too much exercise in a central core area, they were also left waiting for their man. And she went on to say, after reviewing details such as the unlikelihood of monogamy between such differently scaled males and females to comment, the Lovejoy hypothesis may also be viewed at an entirely different level, that is, as being preoccupied by, of, with questions, anxieties about male sexuality. At its most basic level, the hypothesis focuses on the evolution of how men got, get, sex. Quote, she goes on to point out that the behaviour of terrestrial female primates suggests that female ancestral hominids chose multiple partners for reproductive and recreational sex and that, quote, much of the world appears to fear that this might still be the case as indicated by the universal close observation and control of sexual conduct in human communities. Not to mention all those male insecurities simmering below the surface of Lovejoy's hypothesis. End quote. I'll put them in interesting. God, I didn't realise scientists have, evolutionary scientists have such interesting and engaging debates. Having dismissed the notion that a providing male brought home the bacon to a monogamous immobilized mate, Paul took up the alternative and much simpler theory that walking upright minimized the amount of direct sun the earliest hominids received as they moved in the open spaces between patches of trees thereby freeing them to move farther and further out from the shade of the forest. Falk explains that Peter Wheeler, whose hypothesis it was... Hold on, I just got to let the dog into the car. Henri, up! 
Okay, you, you quadrupedal animal. Well done. Now see, quadrupedes are slower than bipedes. Fault took up the alternate and much simpler theory that walking upright minimized the amount of direct sun and the earliest that the earliest hominids received as they moved in the open spaces between patches of trees, thereby freeing them to move further and farther out from the shade of the forest. Falks explains that Peter Wheeler, whose hypothesis it was, proposed that, quote, these features led to a whole body cooling that regulated temperature of blood circulating to among other regions the brain helped prevent heat stroke and thereby released a physiological constraint on brain size in homo <clears throat> thus Changes freed the species to grow larger and larger brains, as well as to wander further and further. She buttresses Wheeler's theory with information drawn from her own research into brain evolution and structure, and concludes, as Mary Leakey did, though for a different reason, that becoming upright, walkers didn't create, but did make possible the rise of intelligence. I'm going to stop there on page 42. Coming up now is more stuff about intelligence, well, and stuff about how uh, Rebecca Solnit got so annoyed. Let me take my iPhone out from under my, under my shirt. My God. I've recorded one hour and seven minutes of an audio. Oh my goodness.